It is an honor, once again, to bring the word of God as we go through the book of Romans, which is really the book that gives us so much of the glory of God in our salvation. Because as Romans begins, it shows us that first the Jews, the Gentiles, as a world, as a humanity, we are dead in our trespasses. We suppress the truth when we're unbelievers. And we either believe in a false God or we believe in ourselves as the one who has the authority to rule our lives. But Paul continues to teach us that it is by grace through faith. But he has to establish the bad news before he establishes the good news. And as we've been seeing in chapter 6 and chapter 7, he has been laboring on how as now saved believers we are to act in this world, our relationship with Christ. And now we're going to delve into the law of God somewhat. right? He doesn't go into an extreme depth as he has done in other places. But he speaks about the law. So as we will read now, if you would stand with me to read the word of God, we're going to be in Romans chapter 7, verses 7 through 12. And you're going to see him speak about the law in correlation with us as believers. Let's begin as the inerrant, infallible word of God states. What then shall we say? That the law is sin? By no means. Yet if it had not been for the law, I would not have known sin. For I would not have known what it is to covet. If the law had not said, you shall not covet. But sin, seizing an opportunity through the commandment, produced in me all kinds of covetousness. For apart from the law, sin lies dead. I was once alive apart from the law, but when the commandment came, sin came alive and I died. The very commandment that promised life proved to be death to me. For sin, seizing an opportunity through the commandment, deceived me and through it killed me. So the law is holy and the commandment is holy and righteous and good. Let's pray. Father God, as Paul instructs us here that the law is not sin. Instead, it is the mirror, the moral character of God that shows us that we are fallen creatures and we need you, Lord. Because the law is holy and it is righteous and is good, we are to cling to it in obedience to you. For you deserve all honor, all praise, all worship, not only through our mouths, not only through our thoughts, but through the obedience of your law. So as we go through these texts, Lord, please give us wisdom, discernment, and understanding. For to you is the glory forever and ever. Amen. Amen. So as I 
was elaborating before we read, the law of God is the subject of today in terms of what it does to us as humans, as creatures, and what it reveals, and what it's meant to make us look to. So I've titled this sermon, Is the Law Sinful or Holy? So you can ask yourself the question, the law shows me that I am a sinful creature. Better yet, as Paul states, when I didn't know about this, this law, I lived my life, and when I found out about it, it actually destroyed me. And that's why it, the cause is, is it sinful? Is the law sinful? Because it's revealing evilness. It's revealing the horror that is inside of us. That is our nature. Now, as, he, as Paul elaborates in verse 7, it is about the knowledge of sin. As he states, What then shall we say that the law is sin? By no means. Yet if it had not been for the law, I would not have known sin. For I would not have known what it is to covet if the law had not said, you shall not covet. So this begs a question. Without this word of God, this infallible scripture, would you have known that your desires, probably 95% of your desires, are sinful and against the will, the revealed will, of God. Does the world know? Only because we continue to tell them. But they don't even know. You ask people, it's like, why is it wrong if I love somebody that's my same gender? Why is that wrong? And what do we point to? Or what should we be pointing to? God says it's wrong. Why? Why would God say that's wrong? Why? Why does he choose things to be like that? That is a question that you would have to speak to God in person. But what are we to do? We are to follow his word. Some things in this word, as we've gone through, there are some things that are secondary issues. We do not believe that they are salvific issues. But they are tough things to kind of do sometimes. There are things that we, it's like, it brings about, it, it shows how sometimes we are lazy about things. We don't want to do things. We just, our nature is just, no, I don't want to do that. I don't want to get up early in the mornings to come to church on my day off. I want to sleep in. I know I'm not the only one that thinks that. Come on, right? But what we have to see is that the God-ordained role of the law in a fallen world is to reveal the nature of our sin. And what the law does is it defines what sin is 
and it provokes these sinful reactions, which the law is against. Because you hear of the law, and which most are going to say and are going to disagree with the law, except for maybe one or two here and there, they're going to say, no, I don't want to do that. They rebel against the truth of God. The law brings us to know the reality of sin in our moral and our spiritual system. Look what Romans 3.20 says. This is Paul once again. So this is through the book of Romans. He's speaking about the law, about our sin, and about why we're in this condition. But here he states, Because by the works of the law, no flesh will be justified in his sight. For through the law comes the knowledge of sin. So you see the first section where he says, by the works of the law, no flesh will be justified. You're going to look at the list. What's the point of the law? Why, Why would God set this standard that he knows we cannot meet? Have you ever asked yourself that question? Why would God, like we've asked in, in certain Sunday schools, why would God put Adam in the garden with the tree of, of, of good and evil, the knowledge of good and evil, in other words, wisdom, why would he put it there knowing for a fact that Adam is going to fail and plunge us into a world of sin? of the worst kind because there are degrees of sin. I mean, let's, let's be real, right? There's a difference between, you know, not following the speed limit and there's another sin of killing a human being. Differences. But that plunged us into what, we, what this world is today. So what is the point of the law? More on that later. And then he speaks about coveting. And out of all the laws of God, out of all the commandments, and even if you remember in the Old Testament, there's like 613 commandments that they're supposed to follow. Again, how are you supposed to follow all that? It's impossible. But what is coveting? Deuteronomy 5.21 And you shall not covet your neighbor's wife and you shall not desire your neighbor's house, his field or his male servant or his female servant, his ox or his donkey or anything that is your neighbor's. Face value. You are not to desire and want anything that is, does not belong to you and is not yours and you can never have. Just like if we were to, as men, if we were to desire desire somebody else's wife, does not belong to us. We have no right. You are sinning in your desire. You are coveting. As Arthur Pink speaks about what coveting is, evil concupiscence, and that's just a big word for desires, consists of those secret 
and internal sins which go before the consent of the will and which are the seeds of all evil. All sin starts somewhere. From the biggest to the smallest. And it starts in here. Those that commit murder, adultery, theft in a physical sense, whether it was one second before they made the decision or it was days or months or years, it started here and here. That is what, as Johnny has called, thought crime. That is thought crime. Out of all religions that are out in the world, including atheism, yes, it's a religion, there is only one that speaks about the evil desires plunging you to spiritual death or death in general. So what does that show us? This is some serious, serious stuff. We are not messing with a God that, as is portrayed in the world today, He's all love, no wrath, no judgment. He's not looking at you and saying how horrible you are and how you need to turn to Him. No, He loves you. And come as you are, if you were a Nirvana motto song. right? Come as you are. When we say, come as you are, as Christians, we are saying, you come the way you are to event, to repent and then change and be transformed. Not to come as you are and stay like that. We do not say that here. We need to elaborate it because it has become a motto of the evangelical or the, the big Eva church that states, come as you are. Don't worry about it. You're fine. There's nothing wrong. Just come, listen to the message, hang out with us, have some coffee with us, live your life. Don't worry about those other people. Live your best life now, right? No. God speaks about thought crime. You're a murderer at heart. You're an adulterer at heart. You're a thief at heart. You're a liar at heart. And I'm speaking to myself too, so don't think that I'm only speaking to you. If we do not take God's law serious, then it will never, ever lead us to repentance. And as we say in the Reformed Church, because God regenerates you and transforms you, that's why you take sin seriously. And you realize this is an offense against God, the only true God. And I need salvation. I need mercy because I can't pay that back. It's impossible. Jesus states in Matthew 15, 18 through 19. But the things that proceed out of the mouth come from the heart and those defile the man. For out of the heart come evil thoughts, murders, adulteries, sexual immoralities, thefts, 
false witness slanderers. If you don't believe what I've been saying, do you believe Jesus? And Jesus is not some hippie Jesus that is all love. Yes, he's extremely loving and God is love, but God is not just 50% this, 20% that. He's 100% everything, every attribute. He's 100% love, he's 100% holy, he's 100% wrath among his other attributes. 100%, 100%, 100%. Let's not forget that. God takes sin seriously and somebody has to pay for it. Can you pay for it? The answer is no. You cannot. So as Paul states, both in verses 8 and 11, he's going to be talking about how sin either seizes an opportunity or there's a deception that is going on. Verse 8 and verse 11. But sin, seizing an opportunity through the commandment, produced in me all kinds of covetousness. For apart from the law, sin lies dead. So apart from knowing, excuse me, that you have sinned, if you don't know that you have sinned, sin is, sin is asleep. It's dormant. Because your entire life is an offense to God, the sin has to do nothing. It is already in place. It is dormant in the sense of you knowing. Verse 11, for sin, seizing an opportunity. Again, you see that seizing an opportunity through the commandment, deceived me, and through it killed me. Now this is giving sin kind of a, a personification, right? Sin is not something that we talk to and we have a conversation with. Hey sin, how you doing? Nice to meet you. No, sin is something from within that comes out, right? It is something that's an offense to God. But here it's giving it a personification so that it's showing that it's seizing an opportunity like, like, like a thief or somebody that wants to take advantage of you. And it says, deceived me and through it killed me. Where have we seen deceived me before? Genesis. Genesis. That is an allusion to the serpent in the Garden of Eden. Let's be reminded here. Genesis 3.13 Then Yahweh God said to the woman, what is this you have done? And the woman said, The serpent deceived me and I ate. Sin seized an opportunity. Why? Because the desire came, sin came. Also in 2 Corinthians 11.3 But I fear that as the serpent deceived Eve by his craftiness, your minds will be corrupted from the, from the simplicity and purity of devotion to Christ. So of course, this, this here is talking to believers and how being deceived by sin can bring you away, or take you away, I should say, not bring you away, take you away from that devotion to Christ. As we've talked about in the men's group, probably multiple times. When 
people are either they don't know what's going on in their lives and there's a lot of uncertainty they're not sure they're not trusting their sin whatever is going on it always seems to stem from somehow there's a separation in their relationship with God where they're not doing what they've normally been doing right or something got in the way and it's that's happened to me right that's happened to probably all of us sin takes us away from Christ in a sense that it, it separates us somewhat. Obviously, we believe, as, is, as Paul does show in multiple verses, that we cannot be separated from the love of Christ. So there is never a full separation. But there are separations when it comes to taking steps back, right? You separate yourself a little bit. God will bring you back. But that's what sin does. And that is revealed. How do you know you're sinning? It is revealed by the word, the law of God. And also in 1 Timothy 2.14, And Adam was not deceived, but the woman was deceived and became a transgressor. So there you go. You see the word deceit or the phrase deceived and deceived me as we were talking about in Romans 7 is an allusion to how Sin, whether external or internal, deceives us and seizes an opportunity to separate us from Christ, even if it's just for a little bit. Because if we believe that Satan, a being, right, a, a being that has a mind that thinks, must get some type of pleasure somewhere. And if it sees the pleasure of the people of God at times or temporarily separating themselves from Christ, that makes them happy. That gives them pleasure. Just like he was trying to do with Job, right? Wasn't he, in the sense, trying to do that? He says, he won't, he won't, uh, he, he will blaspheme your name if you take away all these things because you've shielded them, put a hedge around them, nothing touches him, everything is great for him. So did he win the bet or did he lose the bet, metaphorically speaking? He lost the bet. Job did not blaspheme. Even his own wife wanted him to blaspheme God. And he did not blaspheme. That historical account needs to show us that when we go through afflictions tribulations we are not to blaspheme the word we are not to blaspheme the name of god don't let sin take an opportunity now we'll jump back up to verse 9 cuz verse 8 and 11 were very similar was it 11 <laughs> but yes Alive, apart from the law. I was once alive apart from the law. But when the commandment came, sin came alive and I died. The very commandment that promised life proved to be death to me. Again, you're seeing a personification of sin 
This is not an exact account, right? This is a, a, an example that is being used and is using in a way where sin actually has thoughts and ideas and can take advantage of you and this and that. When Paul says, alive apart from the law, somebody asks you that, how do you answer that? Paul was alive, that means in his self-righteousness, he did not understand that he was actually spiritually dead. It's like when you say he's, he's the life of the party, he's, he's, he's alive, man, he's, he's going out there and he's doing things. It's a phrase that it's used. He's not actually spiritually alive. He's spiritually dead, but he doesn't know it. Or he didn't know it, I should say. Because that law reveals that he is spiritually dead. So when you live by the law, you're doing it in obedience to God. That's the only way you can do it. You cannot live by the law for salvation. You can only live for obedience. But as God states many times, when you live by them, it's, it's like a twofold, right? You live your life by them, but you will live. You will be alive for eternity. When you live by these, not for salvation, but as obedience. Once you're obeying God through the law, that means you're already regenerated and saved. It can't be the before that. So let's look at Leviticus 18.5. So you shall keep my statutes and my judgments, which if a man does them, he shall live by them. I am Yahweh. There you go. Live by them. That's what we're called to do. We're not to say law is now put aside. Law is, is inconsequential. We don't need it. It's all about grace. Uh, the grace is what leads you to actually now fulfill the law according to Christ. Deuteronomy 30, 15 through 20. Listen to this. Okay? And as, and, or read it. Look what God is saying. And tell me that the law is not how we should live. See, I have set before you today life and prosperity and death and calamity. And that I am commanding you today to love Yahweh your God, to walk in His ways and to keep His commandments and His statutes and His judgments, that you may live and multiply and that Yahweh your God may bless you in the land where you are entering to possess it. But if your heart turns away and you will not listen, but are drawn away and worship other gods and serve them, I declare to you today that you shall surely perish. You will not prolong your days in the land where you are crossing the Jordan to enter it and possess it. I call heaven and earth to witness against you today that I have set before you life and death, the blessing and the curse. So choose life in order that you may live, you and your seed, 
by loving Yahweh your God, by listening to his voice, and by holding fast to him. For this is your life and the length of your days, that you may live in the land which Yahweh swore to your fathers, to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob, to give them. He's given Israel an ultimatum. And what is the principle here? The people of God are to live, should first love God, walk in his ways, and keep his commandments and his statutes and his judgments. That is how we're supposed to live. If somebody, or if you look at this text and you say, well, but that's only for Israel, right? Because it's distinctly talking about the land. It's talking about Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And they didn't even follow this eventually. Okay. Were some of these people, at least a remnant of them, were they saved? Were they already saved? Yes. They were saved by the promise and the faith of Abraham that looks forward to a Messiah that would actually atone for their sins in its finality. They, those, it's really meant for all because there was unbelievers there and there were believers. There was unregenerate and there was regenerate. It's meant for all. But who kept it? Only a remnant. And that goes to show you that you can't do this without God saving you first. That promise that started in Genesis 3.15 and went down the line is how you were saved and it was consummated in the new covenant by Jesus Christ living a perfect life, dying for your sins, and being resurrected. So verse 12. Here we speak. I kind of put a, a, a play on words as there's books out there that talk about the holiness of God. Here is the holiness of the law. So the law is holy. And the commandment is holy and righteous and good. Do you believe this? Or do you think the law is, it's, we don't need it anymore? You got to ask yourself that question. Self-examine. Do you believe the law is holy? That it is righteous, right? That that's what we should live by. That it is good. Psalm 19, 7 through 9. The law of the Lord is perfect, reviving the soul. The testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple. The precepts of the Lord are right, rejoicing the heart. The commandment of the Lord is pure, enlightening the eyes. The fear of the Lord is clean, enduring forever. The rules of the Lord are true and righteous altogether. Do we believe this? Do we live by this? 
both you and me. This is what I need to teach my kids. You live by God's law. It is perfect. It is righteous. It is holy. It is good. It is God. It is his moral character. Psalm 119, 137. Righteous are you, O Lord, and right are your rules. We don't like rules as humans. But let me tell you something. We live by rules or else it'd be chaos. And for those that state, well, you live by your rules and I'll live by my rules, especially those that live in this country. Wake up call. The rules of this country, especially the, the very first ones. I know things have gone awry in the last hundred years, but they were inspired and influenced by the law of God. And if you don't want to face that, sorry. That's just the way it is. Go start your own country. But they want to hijack our country and say, those Christian laws, they're old, that we don't need them. We live by this rule here. Sorry. That's not the way the church functions. We live by the law of God. We answer to Christ who is king over the universe. So he makes the rules in every country. Those countries need to uphold God's law. And when they're not doing that, they are fallen. They are in judgment. And I can't speak for God, but it does seem like some have been judged and some might be judged later on. We don't know. God acts according to his nature. So there's nothing arbitrary or inconsistent about the way he applies the laws to his people. It's been the same from before Christ and it's been the same after Christ. You live by the law in obedience to him, not to be saved, but in obedience to him because you're already saved. And that whole transaction is eternal life because Christ has died for you the promises have been fulfilled and now you obey God because you love him and you don't want to be an offense to him. Now to finish it off, I have a statement that I made. It's not going to be up on the screen, but I'm going to leave this verse up here and point to it. Because if you really believe this, if this is true, as we believe the word of God is infallible and inerrant, this is perfect, this is true. Do we believe this? This is my statement on the culture and biblical law. There has been a theological deprivation of the church that has unhitched the Old Testament from the hearts of Christians and has resulted in a theological position called red-letter Christians. This, though, has just been a consequence of the liberalism and post-modernism that had crept into the church and had stayed dormant for many years 
until the Scopes trial that brought to the forefront the theory of evolution as a legitimate alternative to biblical creation. This liberalism had previously engulfed many European countries into secularized cultures that had given us a humanist framework in opposition to biblical Christianity. This led to two world wars, ideological rivalries manifested in a cold war, and demonic ethics like the drug and sexual revolution of the 60s. The church as a whole took the position of neutrality and removed itself from discipling the nations to removed itself from discipling the nations and moved to submission of those cultures in the name of love. Our country was founded on principled Christian law that inspired and influenced the laws of this country to the glory of God. But as the country and the world became more secular and accepted the syncretism of all ideologies except biblical Christianity, the world retreated to paganism. The people of Israel dealt with the same principal issue as Moses was leading them to the promised land. God, through Moses, had said in Deuteronomy 4, 5 through 7, See, I have taught you statutes and judgments, just as Yahweh my God commanded me, that you should thus in the land where you are entering to possess it. You shall keep and do them, for that is your wisdom and your understanding in the sight of the peoples who will hear all these statutes and say, surely this great nation is a wise and understanding people. For what great nation is there that has a God so near to it as is Yahweh our God whenever we call on him? God is glorified and honored when his law is loved, practiced, and enforced, yet the world continually turns its back on his law and with our country has labeled it oppressive and an old form of thinking. The visible church has retreated from teaching them to do all that Christ commanded, Matthew 28, 20, which includes the law and which has rendered the standard through which we should live by them as merely a religious afterthought. As we go forth, we must not only evangelize the world, but set upon them the transcendent standard that is written on our hearts by the Creator, who the Scriptures say, the heavens declare the glory of God, and the sky above proclaims His handiwork. Psalm 19.1 This world is ensnaring itself in a trap of an inconsistent worldview 
that will plunge this world deeper into its own sin until chaos rules the institutions that are set up to deliver justice, equity, and liberty. No longer will we be bullied by God-haters into believing that God's law will result in tyrannical rulers and warmongers. Let's be reminded that secular and humanist ideological tyrants led wars and revolutions that killed as many as 150 million people between 1900 and 1970. Furthermore, there is a satanic religious empire hiding in the plain sight of the free world, ready to force nations into submission in a holy war for their God, Allah. Humanists ask, wouldn't biblical law lead to tyranny? Now let me ask you, in biblical world history, who was the tyrant, Israel or Egypt? Israel or Babylon? Our God uses tyranny to punish his people when they continually turn their backs on him and his law. But the highest point of tyrannical law was when the world pierced the Lord and Savior with our own spear of sin. We were part of that with our sin. The gospel of Christ will lead his people to faith and will necessitate the outworking of biblical law in obedience to our King of kings and Lord of lords. Through Jesus Christ, we are the light of the world, the salt of the earth, the city set on a hill that cannot be hidden. Matthew 5, 13 through 14. Now I ask, do you believe the law is holy and righteous and good? Let's self-examine ourselves as we close. Father, Son, Holy Spirit, we bend the knee to you because you are our King and our Lord. We love your law because it is righteous, holy, and good. You have given us now the disposition, the nature to obey your law, to please you, to be a sweet aroma to you. In our gratitude and our thankfulness, we meet together as your people, as the body of Christ, on this Lord's day to worship you through song, through the reading of the Psalms, and through the exposition of the book of Romans that your servant Paul wrote for all. Lord, please grant us the motivation, the love, the excitement 
to obey you, the ruler and king of this universe. For there is no other. You have been so merciful with us because we have failed continually and come up short. Yet you have wiped away our tears and said, come to me, love me, worship me, and you will have eternal life. Lord, bless us today. Consecrate this sermon, these songs, because it is all for your glory. For these things we pray in the precious, beautiful, holy, gracious, loving name of Jesus Christ. Amen.